Well, good afternoon. Today, I'm proud to be a Wiganer. <laughs> Having been born and bred in the little town of Wigan, what a joy it was yesterday to be at Wembley and see my beloved hometown team beat the mighty Manchester City. If you're wondering why I'm feeling a little bit hoarse, then that will probably explain why because we did shout and scream and bellow at various points. Uh, and thank you, for one of the, one of, thank you for all your text messages. One of the highlights of my day yesterday was not three minutes after the final whistle blew, my phone beeped and I had a little look and I had a text message that said, Well done, Wigan, from Joan Vardy. And I was very impressed by that cultural awareness, sporting knowledge, and uh, quicker than anyone else. Uh, my own mother texted me after Joan Vardy did to say, well done Wigan. So I was very, that was a real highlight. Well, one friend sent me a Facebook message yesterday saying, you'll enjoy celebrating tonight and your sermon will have an extra boost tomorrow. I'm not sure how connected football and uh, sermons are, but... Um, yeah, we certainly had a great time. Now, you, you'll know that we're taking a little break from our series in Hebrews to do uh, some stuff, I suppose, that is uh, culturally relevant. In the early part of this year, we did uh, a short series entitled God, the Gospel and Culture, which I really enjoyed, and I hope you found it uh, useful and helpful as well. If you didn't catch all of the talks... Um, they're, they're up with the slides as well on our website and uh, what, what we've planned to do since then is to maybe every six weeks or so run a little uh, service like this I quite, do, I quite like doing it like this as well cafe style is nice uh, but we're thinking about things that are culturally uh, relevant so we, we, we've continued on the same title God, the Gospel and Something and we're trying to be practical. And today, my, my title, I suppose, is, is God, the Gospel, and the Future. So I want to begin with a question. And you're sitting in the perfect arrangement here to do this. Well, I want to think about what, what do you think people in our culture feel and think about the future? What do you think people in our culture, and that includes you and me, because we're in our culture, what do we think about the future? So maybe you could turn to the people who are sitting next to you, if you haven't met them yet, just introduce yourself, and just spend two minutes talking about what you think people in our culture think about the future. And then in a moment we'll have a little recap. So you go ahead, talk away. Well, that's... Um, Let's have a little recap, shall we? Who's brave enough to shout out uh, some thoughts from what you were discussing there? Who's going to go first? Good. Well done. Well done for diving in first. So, very uncertain then. Do you, do you want to elaborate on that? Do you want to elaborate on that? No. Okay. You go, you go ahead, Adrian. Yeah, um, I, I guess it reflects the changing fortunes of the nation as well. We were talking about that, that 
Yeah. Okay. Right, yeah. Really, one culture. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very pluralistic culture, isn't it? Yeah. But I, I suppose I mean generally. The, the, I'm using that word to describe the great mass of people. Yeah. No. That, well, in, in relation to the future, that is an anxiety for many people. The kind of how, how do we cope with like the diversity of culture and manage that kind of pluralism without fragmenting. Into, into sort of separate groups of people. How can we maintain a unity in the midst of that diversity? Politicians are grappling with that every day, aren't they? That's a fear that many people have. What about the group at the back? Oh, you all look shocked. <laughs> that, no, don't look behind you. That is you. <laughs> So there's maybe an element of people putting the future almost to the back of their mind and ignoring it and sort of, yeah, live for the now. But yeah, maybe that is. Okay. And any other comments? A mixture of fear and excitement. That's a great quote when you think about the future. Yeah, uncertainty. Yeah. Life's often like that, isn't it? A mixture and excitement. You can add to that? No? Okay. What about this side? There was great hilarity in this group. They thought the future was hilarious. <laughs> I don't know. Go on, what, what did you think? <coughs> you were talking about children and expanding on some of what Adrian was saying. You know, what opportunities are the kids going to have in the future? It is a worry sometimes. So, worry and excitement, I can't say. So okay. Okay. Are there any other comments here? Or have they stolen your thunder, everyone else? Some people talk about, well, kind of climate change and the idea <coughs> the world is changing for a while. Yeah. very kind of instant and now yeah well I, I was listening to um, a, another talk on, on this subject and, and the guy that I was listening to was talking about when you think about films and what they say about people's attitude towards culture maybe in the 60s and 70s a lot of films that were made about the future were very much like sci-fi films that were you know there were still problems and conflicts but it was all about no health problems, you know, a very scientific society, you know, and kind of utopia. And yet some of the films that have maybe been made in the last 10 years are all about, you know, there's not going to be a planet to live on. <laughs> it's kind of, 
will be wiped out by disease or by artificial intelligence overtaking us. So whereas there was maybe an optimism about the future, maybe more recently there's become more pessimism about the longer term future. So, yeah, well, all of those things are very valid and it's good to get us thinking about the future. Um, you, you could, as we've said, ignore the future. And many people would take that view and the future's a long way away off. Let's just ignore it and live for the now. If you, if you watch The Apprentice on TV and you see those super intelligent business brains who are so capable and competent, I would say that those people are very confident about the future, wouldn't you? The future is mine. I'm going to seize the day and change the future. Some people maybe have that attitude. I think for a lot of people, we've touched on uncertainty would say that they worry about the future. And there's a lot of things that start with the word global, isn't there? Global warming, global terrorism, global downturn. We touched on that. And maybe when we think about the future, we're thinking a little bit, at least, about the subject of anxiety. And I think the Bible has clearly got a lot to say uh, about these issues. But the passage that Abby read to us, it would be really helpful if you've got a Bible, if you could just keep it open on this page in Matthew's Gospel and chapter 6. This, is, this um, little part of Jesus' teaching is a little subset of what has become known as the Sermon on the Mount, very famous teaching of Jesus. And Jesus begins this little section with the words, therefore I tell you, do not worry. And uh, we, we could possibly translate that, do not be anxious. Um, and I, I think that is very relevant uh, as we think about God, the gospel and the future to hear the words of Jesus, do not be anxious. It often seems that our modern culture is kind of gripped by, I don't, I don't know, a sort of pathological pessimism or anxiety. And the future seems quite bleak sometimes. Um, but I wonder whether something strikes you about these words of Jesus. Jesus saying, do not worry or do not be anxious. Well, let, let's put it this way. Who wakes up in the morning and says to themselves, today, I'm really going to go all out with worry. I really want to rake over all the things that cause me anxiety and just wallow in them until they grip me so tightly that I can't think about anything else. Yeah, today, that's what I'm going to do. I'm definitely going to try and be really anxious today. I, I don't think anyone gets up wanting to worry. And yet, how often do we find ourselves slipping into modes of anxiety and worry, slightly, uh, not, not deliberately, it, 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 it almost, sometimes, I, I don't know about you, sometimes I wake up at three o'clock in the morning and find myself worrying. 
And I, I don't go to sleep thinking, I'm going to, I don't need to set my alarm, but I'm just going to wake up at three o'clock in the morning and I'm really going to try and rake that thing over. It's not a deliberate thing. It almost like, it's almost like there's a gate open and something comes flooding in and you can't stop it. So for Jesus to say, therefore I tell you, do not worry, is he really asking us not to do something that we just can't help doing? Does that strike you? It's one thing to give commands, isn't it? And to say things to people, do this, don't do that. But to tell people not to do something that seems to almost cling to us sometimes seems very bold. We instinctively know that worry isn't so good for us, but we can't quite conquer it often. On one level, we might think that Jesus is just saying here to these people and to us, just pull yourself together. Stop worrying. There's a few people in our modern culture, there's been popular songs, you know, don't worry, every little thing's going to be all right. Is it reggae? Who sang that song? Was that Bob Marley? I've no idea. Shows how culturally where I am. Every little thing's going to be all right. Is Jesus just saying, just chill out, stop worrying, pull yourself together? It's not as bad as all that. I think if we take that impression away, perhaps we're going to miss the heart of what Jesus is saying here. I don't, we, we've got kids and sometimes, you know, you, you might have had the experience of taking a splinter out of someone's finger. Have you ever, have you ever done that? And have you, have you ever, like, seen a splinter that you can't possibly get out yourself because you need two hands to do it? So you have to say to someone else, oh, please, come and give me a hand with this. And it really hurts. And the other person is trying to, like, you know, get, get really close. Where's that? You're sitting in the light. Move up. And, you, and you're trying to pull the splinter out. And what's the phrase that you're going to say to the other person who's hurting? You're going to say, keep still. Uh, you keep, but it's hurting. Keep still. And I, I wonder here whether in this passage there is an element of Jesus. He's not taking a splinter out of our finger, but there's an element of Jesus here being the master surgeon and coming to us and saying, just sit still for a minute. And let me operate on you. Let me just unpick some of the things that do cause you anxiety. And let me help you and point you to things that would help you. I think that's a good image to keep in mind as we approach this passage. And and often that's a challenge for us in life, isn't it? Being still it's easy for us to talk about being still but sometimes we're so busy we're so fraught with anxiety perhaps often that it's hard for us to sit still and allow Jesus to kind of extract what he needs to take out to enable us to to trust God Now, of course, some anxiety is good for us. And uh, human beings are amazingly resilient at coping with uh, different degrees of stress. I'm I'm told by uh, people that, 
you know, we, we humans have this thing, you know, the fight or flight mechanism. Have you heard of that phrase? That when we, when we fail under threat of danger or stress, we seem to almost have things built into our physical makeup, uh, very closely connected to our emotional makeup, that, that will cause us to either kind of run or, or stand and, and fight. What, what isn't so healthy, I suppose, is that the human body and the human emotions don't seem to be designed to be on high alert all the time. Can you imagine what that would be like? And there can be physical symptoms, can't there, of heightened stress when we're continually anxious um, I've been reading a brilliant book recently uh, just finished it not, not long ago Richard Holy said he wanted to borrow this uh, so you'll, you'll be able to take it for him today Jane um, this, this book is written by a professor of psychiatry and it's just called Trauma on the front it says from Lockerbie to 7-7 how trauma affects our minds and how we fight back and this guy has dealt with loads of people from Terry Waite, John McCarthy, some of you older ones remember them being in captivity for uh, five years or so. Um, Johnson B. Harry, do you know that name? The the guy who got the Victoria Cross after being blown up in his armoured vehicle. Um, The whole concept of post-traumatic stress disorder and the way that human beings who are faced with significant trauma have very heightened uh, sense of alert even the slightest noise and it, the human body doesn't seem to be designed to be on red alert all the time uh, Tim Keller, an American uh, writer that some of you will know, paints the picture of, of people living with the Jaws theme tune playing as the soundtrack to their lives, I thought that was an amazing picture but that, maybe that describes sometimes some of us and in the background you can just and it's kind of I know there's a shark's fin here somewhere I don't quite know where it is but it's here and that sense of being anxious Uh, for others anxiety is more of a philosophical thing I think many philosophers in history have suffered with what we might call existential angst um, I think the film, I wasn't there last night because I was obviously at Wembley seeing my team win the FA Cup. Did I mention that? Um, but the film last night was one that was all about existential angst. And philosophers talk about this, the, the meaninglessness of life, the absurdity of life, that aching sense of what am I for? And that's a kind of a different thing, isn't it? I want to suggest that in the end, I think there's a a possibility that um, anxiety perhaps comes from a sense of not being or not feeling in control. Um, and And the problem here for us is, of course, that there are many things that we can't control, aren't there? The future is possibly one of them. (laughs) We can make plans. It's good to make plans. The Bible commands that. It's good to be wise in how we live. 
but we can't really ultimately control what happens tomorrow. Tim Keller again points out that often, I, I thought this was a very profound insight, often when a genuine crisis hits our lives, whatever it might be, maybe a redundancy or a health issue or whatever it might be, the real issue is that these things tend to shatter our sense of being in control, don't they? And we feel the spiral of being disorientated. But Tim Keller points out that the truth is perhaps that actually we were never really as much in control as we thought we were before that crisis hit. And the anxieties that happen, come, that come with a crisis often reveal the illusion that we thought we were in control when actually we're, we, we're, there's a lot of things that we're not in control of. What strikes me here about these words of Jesus is that Jesus is speaking here to crowds of people who live in an occupied country where genuine poverty is not uncommon. Water is often hard to find because it's hot. Life itself is hard work and at times blatantly unfair. And yet Jesus here, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry. Has he not got a better, more appropriate message for people who feel oppressed? downtrodden it's a very significant passage this and, uh, and it should provoke us Jesus I think here is speaking to the kind of anxious care that cripples and grips us and often takes our eyes off the things that are really important and valuable Jesus here gives some compelling arguments. Um, so I want to say that really the thrust of this passage is not just pull your socks up and try not to worry, but there's some very compelling logic here. That, that this is a very eloquent and compelling part of Jesus' teaching. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not worry. And he goes on to give some reasons. So what I want to try and do is spend a little bit of time uh, just breaking out, I'm trying to remember how many I put, three reasons I think that Jesus, just summarizing Jesus' thoughts here. And then he replaces worry with something else. So do not worry because A, B, C, and then we're going to talk about what Jesus replaces that with. Okay? So there we are, God the gospel and the future. Do not worry, Jesus says, because... First of all, we need to realise that there are things that we can't control. I don't think Jesus has been pessimistic here. He isn't saying, don't worry because there's no point. He's not being cynical. This is a kind of rhetorical device. What does Jesus say? Just look with me at verse 27. Jesus says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? 
often our worries are hypothetical. They don't achieve anything. Our worries and anxieties rob us of energy, creativity. Our vision is filled with what might go wrong. And that sense of negativity cripples us. One writer has said that often our hope is killed stone dead by anxiety. He painted the picture, Jesus died on a cross between two thieves. And the writer said, Jesus died between two thieves and often our hope is crucified by regrets from the past that haunt us and by anxieties about the future that taunt us. And our hope is crucified between those two robbers, regret and anxiety. Anxiety never does any real work. Anxiety never created or altered anything for the better. Anxiety tends to sap us rather than energize us. It's very interesting that at the end of this little section, Jesus says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I, I, yeah, it's very interesting that we could talk about that for the rest of the time, couldn't we? Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. There, there is a compelling logic in that, that actually tomorrow will be today, and tomorrow actually never comes. <laughs> so in a sense, Jesus is saying, don't, don't worry at all. Focus on today. That isn't to say that we shouldn't make plans for the future, but we shouldn't allow hypothetical, anxious care to rob us of our energy in the present. It doesn't add a single hour to our lives. It doesn't achieve anything. Secondly, Jesus says, do not worry because there is more to life than the things we tend to worry about. There's a great account in the Gospels of a man who came to Jesus publicly and asked him to adjudicate a will. He pleaded with Jesus, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. It's not fair. And Jesus very famously said to this man in front of all the people listening, a man's life does not consist of the abundance of his stuff, to paraphrase. Jesus says here, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Some things are more important than others. And often the things we worry about are not the main thing, but are peripheral things that we make the main thing. I suppose we might say that what we worry about can often show where our real values are, our longings, our hopes, and our fears. I think what's interesting about this passage is that Jesus here is not belittling having stuff. He, he actually goes on to say in verse 32 that your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So he, Jesus isn't saying that we should all just give up our stuff and go and live 
in a, in, a, in, a, in a monastery somewhere, what he is saying is that often the things that become our all-consuming passion are the wrong things. Jesus isn't saying it's wrong to possess things, but he is saying that it's wrong when our things possess us. And often our anxieties are because we have misestimated what is really important. Is that a word, misestimated? Well, if it isn't, it is now. We've kind of put the wrong value on things. If we think that life consists in this thing or that thing, according to Jesus here, we have got life all wrong. Life is much more than the things we worry about. A lot of the time we're worrying about what people think or having this or having that. We're we're stressing over things that are not, in the end, ultimate things. And Jesus is not urging us just to give up things and forget material life, but rather to get our priorities in order. I'm getting to an age where I need to be concerned about my physical fitness. I, I, I do love food. But I am getting to an age where I have to think a little bit more carefully. Um, it's, a sh- it's, uh, you know, it's probably a shame to have to admit that I've never really worried too much about what I eat or exercise. But at this age now, it's much easier to put weight on than to lose it. And um, I have to be careful. So, some of you will know that we've put some gym equipment in at home. And um, I think that's very sensible and a good thing to do. And you're very welcome to come and use the gym equipment if you feel you need to keep fit as well. It's all open. Um, but what, what would it do? What would it do to be super diligent about my physical fitness and to give no thought to the spiritual dimensions of life? Maybe I can lose a stone. I can maybe eat more healthily. But those things are not the be-all and end-all compared to my own relationship with God. And that's a good picture, isn't it? That sometimes we're very busy worrying and being anxious about all sorts of legitimate things because we think they're really more important than they really are. And those things have crowded out the most important things in life. I think this is what Jesus is getting at in verse 32, when he he seems to be quite unkind about pagans. Did you notice that verse? But he says, says, so do not worry, verse 31, saying, what should we eat or what should we drink or what should we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. What Jesus is saying is, You know better than that. You don't have to chase after all this stuff just like everyone else does. These things are not the be all and end all of life. So do not worry. Do not worry. The third reason I think that Jesus gives very quickly do not worry because you have a father. 
who cares for you. This is really the heart of the passage, I think. Jesus uh, speaks a lot in the Sermon on the Mount generally about the Father. The Lord's Prayer in this very chapter in verse 9. Our Father in heaven. Jesus speaks a lot about his Father. He mentions your heavenly Father in verse 26. And, uh, and then the verse we just read together from verse 32. It's very interesting, isn't it? Jesus talks here about birds and flowers. And in relation to them, God is the creator. You know, in relation to the animals and the plants, God is the maker, the creator. But in relation to humans, yes, he is the creator. But he is much more than just the creator. Jesus describes him as our heavenly father. In verse 8, just before Jesus gives that famous prayer, the Lord's Prayer, he, well, in that little section there, early in this chapter, he's speaking out prayer. And he says in verse 7, When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. And verse 8, do not be like them. Why? For your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. Loving Father who cares for His children. Well, what a lovely picture Jesus paints of our Father. Jesus uses typical Jewish language here. He argues from the lesser thing to the greater thing and this passage is full of that Jesus says in verse 26 look at the birds of the air they don't sow or reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them are you not much more valuable than they he argues from if God feeds the birds will he not also feed you from the lesser to the greater and he does it again. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, it doesn't even last five minutes and yet God beautifies it. How much more will he not clothe and care for you? Can you see from the lesser to the greater? The emphasis here is on the unique dignity of human life and the extravagant generosity of a loving father who cares. So there you have Jesus' logic. Therefore I tell you, do not worry. Do not be anxious. And we've given these three reasons because there are things that you can't control. There is more to life than stuff. And you have a heavenly father who cares for you. Anxiety is futile because it can't ultimately control the uncontrollable. It often makes us preoccupied with the wrong things and crowds out the fact that we're neglecting the God who loves us so dearly. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He wants to replace anxiety with something else. He isn't just saying stop doing this. 
but rather he's explaining why we do it and then showing what we can displace it with. So look with me at verse 33. Jesus has been saying, do not worry. And then he says, but seek first the kingdom of God, the kingdom of your heavenly Father. And seek his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. So Jesus here uses the metaphor of a kingdom. And so I want to suggest here that what Jesus argues for is that we should seek God's future. This metaphor of a kingdom, a kingdom has a king. And what is happening here in the Gospels is that God's kingdom and God's king are invading this broken world. Jesus comes into the world, his world, to conquer it from within. And he does it by dying, ultimately giving his life for all those who have worried about the wrong things. Actually, in this relationship with God, it isn't God that moved. God has never changed. We're the ones who've moved away from him. But he's never changed. And Jesus gives his life to pay our debts and to make reconciliation with God possible again. That's the heart of the good news of the gospel. In doing so, he has shown us kindness that we don't deserve. But he has also inaugurated his kingdom. And in a way, we now live in a kind of in-between time in which God's kingdom has been inaugurated but not yet consummated. And there are many things that we don't know about the future. But one thing that we do know is that God's kingdom and God's king will ultimately prevail over evil. And Jesus is urging them not to hang their hopes on an idea or a system or a philosophy but to hang their hopes on a person himself and he says to them by way of gentle rebuke oh you of little faith he is really asking them do you trust me or not Tim Keller tells the story of uh, the first Queen Elizabeth, not, not the current one. She apparently asked some guy to go on a, on a trip exploring. And he came to the Queen and he pleaded and said, I, I have a business. If I go on this trip, my business will fold, it'll all fall apart. And the queen very candidly said to him, you mind my business, I'll mind yours. I thought that was a great quote. You mind my business and I'll mind yours. Now when the queen says that to you, you I think you know that your business is going to be pretty safe. You mind my business and I'll mind yours. 
This passage really is an expansion of the verses that come just before it. That's why it starts with a therefore. And in the previous section, uh, from verse 19, Jesus there says to the people, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I've suggested to you that anxiety is about control. But I think for Jesus here, anxiety has also got something to do with what we love the most. It is really about what our hearts are preoccupied with. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And those are the things that we tend to be most anxious about. For Jesus to say, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, he is really saying, you mind my business and I'll mind yours. We have a heavenly Father who loves us, a saviour who died to bring us into relationship with him. And it's not good for us to be crippled with anxieties about other things. I want to just uh, close. I was listening to um, a great talk on this passage by my good friend Pete Jackson from Christchurch Central and he turned uh, those who were listening to one of my most favourite chapters in the Bible Romans chapter 8 and I just want to turn us there as we close it's on page 1135 Um, Pete's uh, closing point really was that um, being part of God's kingdom will give you and me a certain hope for the future but it will also give us a different perspective in the present and here here's what Paul says in Romans and this this describes the broken world that we live in verse 19 of Romans chapter 8 Paul writes the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time, Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. What Paul is describing there is a world of now but not yet. The in-between time. Living in a broken world, conscious of relationship with God, and yet still living in the messiness of a broken world, a world that's frustrated, but that will one day be liberated. That is a certain hope that will affect our perspective 
in the present. Jesus then is a master surgeon. He lovingly explains that worry is not good for us. He shows us that it's often rooted in trying to control things that we can't control. And it's often because we love legitimate things more than we love God himself. Jesus' antidote is that we relinquish self-centered control of our lives and entrust ourselves to his loving care and that we align our priorities with his priorities rather than the other way around. So I want you to hear the words of Jesus as we think about God, the gospel and the future. Do not be anxious but seek first God's kingdom. Oh man, we're going to, uh, well, I'll hand back over to Ian. We're going to sink, I think.